This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have on our show Dr. Sean Hashmi. He's the adult weight management lead for Southern California Kaiser Permanente. He's a board-certified internist, nephrologist, and obesity medicine specialist practicing there at Kaiser, leading a movement towards lifestyle medicine. And his role as regional director for clinical nutrition and weight management at Kaiser Permanente, Southern California, he's responsible for developing a comprehensive obesity management strategy involving lifestyle medicine and obesity medicine for the 4.6 million members that Kaiser Permanente serves. He's driven by a lifelong commitment to be in service to others. He also provides evidence-based health, nutrition, and wellness research through his nonprofit organization called The Self Principle. And I got to know Dr. Hashmi a while ago. He was introduced by our colleagues at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, who we discussed throughout the interview. During that time and when that introduction was made, I was trying to understand what are some of the leading health systems out there like Kaiser Permanente doing to transform healthcare and focus at this important intersection of lifestyle medicine and and value-based care. And Daniel, I think we found the answer here. Truly, there's something different going on there at Kaiser Permanente with Southern California with Dr. Sean Hashmi's leadership. I couldn't tell you how amazed and just impressed I was with the, the amount of information that he provided that I really think gives us pause for thought about ways that we need to be thinking about the provision of healthcare in our country. Eric, I'll just say I was not prepared for where this conversation was going to go. You know, I knew we were going to be talking about eating whole food, plant-based diets. I knew that the self-principle, the sleep more, the love more, the move more. I knew the importance of that. And I was amazed, though, at the things that I learned that he shared and taught about that self-principle. But the thing that sticks out to me in this conversation are the other lessons that I wasn't really expecting to learn about purpose, about hope and leadership and gratitude. I mean, we go through a full range in this conversation about value-based care, value-based kidney care, but the things that really stand out are those principles of leadership and gratitude. And um, and I just want to say that I have such gratitude for Dr. Hashmi for this episode and just say thank you to Dr. Hashmi and just feel so privileged to have been able to speak with him today. 
for those of you out there that really want to learn how to transform sick care into true health care, have better outcomes, and also practice and lead in the spirit of gratitude, look no further than this week's episode with Dr. Sean Hashmi. Dr. Sean Hashmi, welcome to the Race to Value. It's so great to have you on this week. I'm really excited about this interview today. Well, I'm also really excited. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Well, Sean, I really enjoyed connecting with you a few weeks ago, and you were introduced by our colleagues at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. We're really passionate about lifestyle medicine and where it intersects with the broader value-based care movement. The more I learned about your background, I just couldn't wait to have this conversation. And I thought a great way to begin the interview today would just be to learn a little bit about you and what your personal why is, and, and in effect, what is it that drives you to provide evidence-based health, nutrition, and wellness research and information to really help people live their best lives? And you've had some pretty life-defining experiences that have impacted you during your formative years, and they provided you with a lot of determination and purpose and resolve to really make a difference in this world and the way that you provide medical care and also in your leadership in a nonprofit that focuses on full lifestyle medicine across the continuum. So a few of those moments, as I understand, I mean, you were a young child in Pakistan and you were bedridden for several months with a severe case of measles and had several health and digestive problems for years afterwards. And years later, after your family relocated to the U.S., your older sister died from an epileptic seizure and you couldn't save her because you didn't know CPR at the time. And at her funeral, you decided right then and there you wanted to become a doctor. And after you got your medical degree, you married your soulmate and you saw that your wife was really struggling with pulmonary hypertension and lupus, which made you want to find the right foods and lifestyle habits that would give her control over her health and her life. So I wanted to discuss your personal why and some of these moments and how that has driven you as a clinician to evangelize on the importance of lifestyle medicine. And how did these earlier experiences put you on the path that you're on today in helping others? Yeah, I think this is, is, is such an interesting topic to start off with because most of us, we're so used to understanding what we do, but the what we do ends up fading as time goes on and as the pressures of whether you're in the medical setting or any business setting or any setting for that matter. But why we do it is what's drives you. It's that fire that wakes up every morning and tells you, hey, get up and let's do it again. Do something different. You know, when when you come home from a long day's work and all you want to do is sit in front of the TV and watch Netflix or something, there's your why. And that why is always in the back of your mind. And for me, the why was very simple, very strong, very powerful. And it had to do with this idea of hope. And hope is one of those four-letter words that I think as healthcare providers, we don't give enough of. And as patients, we don't receive enough of. And so what ends up happening is, is oftentimes we are limited by the therapeutic advances that we have in medications. But, you know, you can give a cancer patient a diagnosis and say, listen, you know, Mrs. Jones, you're going to die in six months. And I can tell you, I've seen this over and over again. At that six month mark, the patient dies. And it has nothing to do with whether or not they got the right chemo or the right treatment or so forth. It's the sense of, I have given up. I have a timeline in my mind and that's it. And for me, when, when I was a kid, I knew how difficult it was laying in that bed. And you don't remember most of your memories. What you do remember is one or two conversations. And I remember the conversation 
where my parents were talking to a healthcare provider and I don't know what they were. I doubt if they were a physician, but whoever they were basically said, you know, most likely your kid's not going to make it. And that stuck with me. And it actually didn't fire me up. It didn't make me want to get stronger or anything like that. What it did was it made me feel defeated. And I think that carried with me through many, many years. And when my sister passed away, that was a very big turning moment for me because, you know, it's, it's interesting when things happen to you, you may not react the same way, but when things happen to the people that you love, there's this selflessness that people have. And I say, you know, the greatest way to be selfish is to do something kind for someone. And when my sister passed away, that was when I really felt like I had let her down the healthcare system had let her down. And my desire to become a doctor was simple. We used to take uh, three buses. It would take us roughly three to four hours to go and get seen at a county hospital and to basically get the medications for her epilepsy. And there were different medications. It's just that you know, the, when you look at socioeconomic demographics, the people who make the least amount of money often have the least access to even the basic essentials of healthcare. And the medication side effects that she had were so devastating that her daily functioning was really at a minimal, to say the least, going on. And so that's what really got me into it. And, and with my wife, you know, lupus is such a devastating diagnosis because I've never seen two lupus patients the same. And I take care of lupus nephritis, which is lupus attacking the kidneys. So I see a lot of patients with this condition. And, you know, you'll see a 20-year-old come in because they had a hemorrhagic stroke. They bled in the brain and their entire life is turned upside down. Or they have debilitating arthritis where they can't move their fingers and they're just 20 and 30. And it affects females so much more than males. But what that taught me was, what could we do? My wife and I, we've been married now for 10 years. And based on looking at her chart, and if you looked at all of the things that are listed, she shouldn't be alive right now. She has marked liver cirrhosis. She has varices going on. She has pulmonary hypertension. She has right-sided heart failure. She's got PA pressures that were really, really high that were up to 100, which is an extremely high level going on. And what we did was we knew that number one, when you look at medications, they are a part of the solution, but there's so much more to it. And that's where what ACLM does. And the reason I'm so fond of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is it aligns with my own goals and values, which is the self principle, which is sleep, exercise, love and food. And people discount the power of lifestyle so much. But I tell you, my wife is living proof that self works that focusing on simple things like making sure you're sleeping, make sure you're moving, making sure you're focusing on those relationships. And as much as you can, making sure you're pushing towards more plants in your diet. Now, people are on their own journey. They may not be 100%, but wherever you are, you can move a little bit more. And that alone, those four little things, sleep, exercise, love, and food, they translate into hope. Self is hope. And hope is the most powerful thing that we can possibly have in healthcare. And once again, I'll reiterate that I don't think as healthcare providers, we give enough hope. And I don't think patients receive enough hope. Dr. Hashmi, wow, what a powerful way to start this conversation. Thank you so much. The foundation of your work as a national leader in evidence-based health, nutrition and fitness and wellness research is what you call the self-principle. 
And it's also the name of your podcast, just so our listeners know that that's out there. The self-principle is built around four time-tested tenets, sleep more, move more, practice gratitude and kindness, and eat a whole food, plant-based diet. These tenets, as they converge with Western medicine, are really quite groundbreaking as they force us to think more holistically about medical treatment and prevention. Under this construct, you've got sleep, which is medicine because poor sleep is linked to obesity, heart disease, stroke, cancer, and dementia. Exercise is medicine because of its impact on a healthy heart, mind, and body. Love is medicine because mindfulness and gratitude is the key to peace and equanimity. And lastly, food is medicine because a whole food plant-based diet is proven to improve every aspect of health. We're going to get more into the whole food plant-based diet in a later question, but first let's talk about the totality of the self-principle. What role does lifestyle play in juxtaposition to science-based allopathic medicine that's focused on treatment and interventions? As we move toward value-based care in our country, how can lifestyle medicine and Western medicine better converge to become one and the same in that they're treating the whole person and not just symptoms of a chronic disease using a reductionist model? And finally, given the high correlation between lifestyle and disease avoidance or even disease reversal, as seen with many chronic conditions, is lifestyle medicine the future of value-based care? Yeah, so these are, are excellent questions, Daniel. And I'll, I'll start by saying that, you know, what I've seen way too often is, is people look at sort of traditional Western medicine as being completely separate from lifestyle medicine. And what I would argue is, is that they have to be looked at synergistically. In other words, if you do lifestyle medicine, that doesn't mean that you don't take your statin in this case or your blood pressure medication or so forth. What we have to understand is everything in health begins with lifestyle and ends with lifestyle. If we forget that, then we're in trouble. But during that phase in the middle portion of all of that, it's still all of these advances in care that are going on. For example, if somebody is on dialysis, if you don't dialyze them, then they're going to die. There is no other way for me to get the toxins out of the body. I can't eat my way out of it. But before they get to dialysis, I have tremendous opportunities to use the self-principle, the ACLM concepts of evidence-based lifestyle techniques to lower their risk of going on dialysis. While they're on dialysis, for example, if your kidneys are gone and you are on there and you follow more of a plant-based diet, for example, we can lower the amount of toxins that build up your new body. We can lower your mortality risk simply because the high fiber content will have you have more bowel movements. We can control your potassium because of the fact that you're getting rid of potassium through the bowels movements because of the high fiber in a plant-based diet going on. We can lower your phosphorus because plant-based phosphorus has 50% less absorption than animal-based phosphorus. So what I mean by that is, is if we stop lifestyle medicine at the gates and then think it's Western medicine, we've lost. If we think that it's only lifestyle medicine, we've lost. You know, the cost of one patient on dialysis, depending on which estimate you look at, on hemodialysis can range anywhere between $100,000 to $150,000. And there's all sorts of estimates in between, depending on what's going on. You can look at fatty liver, for example. One of the fastest reasons for why people need liver transplants right now is because of fatty liver. It's not because of hepatitis C, it's not because of HIV, it's not because of some rare liver condition going on or anything else that's 
toxic to the liver. It's simply a fatty liver that's leading to cirrhosis, that's leading to a transplant. And how much does a transplant cost? About $500,000, give or take. So when you start to look at all of these things, you know that lifestyle medicine is so important. And it's the beginning, it's the middle, and it's the end. And where we have to make strides in all of this is one, as healthcare providers, we need to start learning the concepts of lifestyle medicine. We don't need to think of this as this is far left field and we're right field or vice versa. We have to look at it from the fact that this is part of who we are. And that's where ACLM has done an amazing job of making it evidence-based. You know, sometimes people keep confusing this idea that if I do lifestyle, then all of a sudden I can drop all of my medications. We hope that's going to be the case. We hope that you have to take less pills, but we also realize that may or may not be the case. We hope that your diabetes completely reverses, but even if it doesn't, what is the value of one more birthday that you celebrate of your daughter, of your granddaughters or your children or whoever you love? What is that one more moment? You see, at the end of the day, life is about moments. If you put those moments together, that is your life. That is your legacy. That is your journey. So all of these absolutes as lifestyle being left field and more of the allopathic medicine being right field, I got to tell you, that's not the way we're going to win any war going on. What we have to do is look at the fact that there's more in common between lifestyle medicine and traditional Western medicine than we understand. And when we look at healthcare costs, we know that right now what's happening on the technology front is there's so many startups and what these startups are doing for better or for worse is they're basically targeting patients who can do more of the virtual type of care, which is the simple on the phone by video care that will address your basic needs. But here's the problem that every healthcare organization is not understanding. In order for healthcare organizations, let's take a hospital, in order for hospitals to stay in business, what they need is patients who are not using their services, who are still getting insurance, because if those fundings don't come in, they can't stay in business. But if I remove all of those members who are the ones that have hardly any issues and make it all virtual and TAV and so forth, which is a cost savings, but somebody else is getting the cost savings in the hospital only gets the sickest of the sick, the people who are already on dialysis, the people who already have liver cirrhosis, who already have heart failure. And I don't look at what programs I can put in that are going to help those patients to reduce their 30-day rehospitalizations, that are going to help me to get the person who needs a hip replacement, knee replacement. Maybe with the proper plan, they may not even need it because the weight loss is enough that they can go without it. Or if they do need it, I can make it safer or the person who needs the transplant but can't get it because of the fact that their BMI is too high. So as we think about lifestyle medicine, we need to find ways to incorporate it into everything we already do instead of trying to make it a standalone thing. Well, Dr. Hashmi, I couldn't agree more. And I've spent the greater part of my career studying these value-based 
healthcare models and thinking about how we can have a technology-enabled, relationship-based, team-based care delivery model. And but also, you know, thinking about how do we go upstream and think about prevention. And you make a compelling case that Western medicine and lifestyle medicine really are synergistic. They go well together. There's more in common than what we understand in the conventional sense. And it really does seem like we're moving the paradigm, hopefully in this value movement towards true healthcare instead of uh, reactive sick-based care. Diet is such an important part of that. And I wanted to engage you on the efficacy of a whole food plant-based diet, because you have some really unique views on this. Contrary to conventional thinking, the increased intake of vegetables does not necessarily link to a lower rate of heart disease. And last year, there was a study published in the journal Frontiers in Nutrition from researchers at the University of Oxford, Nuffield Department of Population Health. And they challenged a host of previous research showing that a plant-based diet is good for your heart and overall health, but their analysis showed that raw vegetables benefit the heart, but not necessarily cooked vegetables. And they found that the heart-related benefit from vegetables vanished altogether when they accounted for lifestyle factors such as physical activity, smoking, drinking, fruit consumption, red and processed meat consumption, and the use of vitamin and mineral supplements. And the findings of this study reminded me actually of what we talked about in our last conversation when you made this comment that stuck with me about how eating impossible meats are really bad <laughs> because, I mean, we're, we're diluting ourselves a little bit. It's like telling a cocaine addict to take less heroin. So uh, I, I just wanted to you know, <laughs> ask you, Dr. Hashmi, can you explain this whole food plant-based diet? Why is it good? But maybe like a, a plant-based diet isn't so good or even bad for you if, if you're not really getting the whole or the raw aspect of, of that consumption. And, and then I also wanted to ask you, are there any diet lessons we can learn from some of these blue zones, which are these regions in the world where a higher than usual number of people live much longer than average? I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so so let's let's go back for a second to that study because I want to make sure that your audience doesn't walk away from this simply thinking that you know cooked vegetables are not good and somehow raw vegetables may have a slight benefit for heart disease and and basically once you account for socioeconomic demographics meaning smoking alcohol intake exercise the benefits of vegetables for heart disease go away it couldn't be further from the truth and I'll, I'll start by saying. Literally every single day, I get an email from a journal, an unsolicited email that comes in that says, you know, we will waive your fees if you can just submit an article to us because we need to publish. So journals need to publish. Number two is the quality of the journal matters, but I see studies in JAMA that come out that are absolutely just horrendous. So what's wrong with this study? Well, first is how do they measure vegetable intake? So if you look at what's required in terms of vegetable intake going on, it's basically in this particular study, they were talking about tablespoons. And they said, if I remember correctly now, it's been a little while, they were averaging about two and a half tablespoons per day. And what's recommended is cups. So what you ought to be eating is anywhere between two to three 
cups of vegetables per day, not tablespoons. So the quantity is magnitudes higher than what you're supposed to do. So if you basically tell somebody that have one tablespoon of spinach, and I don't even know how you measure that, but let's say you do that and the other guy is having two tablespoons, that's not enough of a difference to be able to really come up with findings going on. So I'm not surprised that that study didn't show anything going on. On the flip side, if you were looking at a study that actually measured the amount that we're asking people to take, then you would actually see some very profound benefits. And how do we know? Because there's hundreds and hundreds of well-designed studies and thousands and thousands of overall studies that show that the benefits of vegetables and fruits are absolutely there. And I have lots and lots and lots and lots of references I'd be happy to share. So that's number one. As far as comparing fruits and vegetables to heart disease goes, there's an absolute benefit. You know, we advocate what's called the healthy plate model. And the way you look at the plate is half your plate or 50% of your plate is filled with fruits and vegetables. 25% of your plate is complex carbohydrates and 25% of your plate is your protein, your tofu, your beans, and et cetera going on. So that healthy plate model gives you everything you need when you look at your plate. And, you know, when I was growing up, I remember those Dixie plates, they had like three sections. That's a perfect analogy. You got two small sections and you got the big section. And what we want to do is the foundation is always the vegetables and the fruits, because those are have so many benefits. And the crazy thing is, is people can take a supplement and think they're getting their multis in. But, you know, nature has this unique way of combining everything to work together. And that interaction of all of the right amounts in exactly the right format with the delivery of fiber and water that's found inside fruit and that's found inside vegetables, that's what makes it so exciting. And when people look at conditions like diabetes, for example, and they say, well, my doc said, don't eat fruit. Well, we got to send your doc back to training because fruits actually lower your A1C in the long run. And we have very well studied, designed studies that are randomized, that are controlled, that show that. So if you take a fruit right now and you see a little bit of increase in your sugar, that's going to happen. But if you look at it, what happens with consuming fruits over long term, A1Cs, which is a measure of how much sugar is stuck to your red blood cells, looking at about three months or so 90 to 120 days, depending on the lifespan of the red blood cell, you will find that your A1Cs are lower by eating fruits. That's not the same as eating fruit juice. Now, when we talk about a plant-based diet and we compare it to a whole food plant-based diet, there was a fascinating study and it was basically, I think, I believe it was the ARC trial and a couple others. And this was an analysis, a meta-analysis uh, looking at a bunch of those previous studies and previous populations going on. And what they said was when it came to kidney disease, overall, switching to plants lowers your risk or incidence of kidney disease. Of course, if you have it, it lowers the prevalence of kidney disease. But here was the caveat. Within that subgroup, when they did a subgroup analysis and they said, if you did an unhealthy plant-based diet, and what's an unhealthy plant-based diet? It's all of the new processed stuff that we're seeing that has so much junk in it. And that could be your plant-based burgers, and that could be all sorts of other things. And you know, people who have such a sweet tooth they're like, well, you know, I'm going to switch over to monk fruit or stevia because I can take it and it doesn't have calories going on. All of those things that people think are going to be helpful, they're not. And I'll say a brand name, and I try never to say brand names, but I, 
I don't want to have them, you know, chase me down the block or something. But there's always a very, very serious problem when you have the fast food giants such as McDonald's and Kentucky Fried Chicken and Taco Bell coming up with plant-based options on their menus. Number one, it's great that we're starting to see plant-based options because it's good for the environment. It's good for animal welfare. So absolutely for it. Number two is the recommendation is still not to go to fast food places. That just because they have plant-based doesn't mean that it has a seal of health on there. So if you're getting a ton of saturated fat, if you're getting a ton of salt, remember the impact of salt on your heart, on your kidneys, on your brain, on your blood vessels is all clearly defined. There's no debating that salt in excess is not good for you. Just like too little salt, which can lead to things like hyponatremia, where if you have too much water trapped in the body, it gets diluted. But too little or too much of anything is always a problem. But this concept of a healthy plant-based diet is the same thing that the concept of the blue zones is. You know, in the blue zones, there weren't any plant-based burgers. There weren't any artificial meats going on. What they had was if you wanted to eat a plant-based burger, they would serve you a bowl of beans, right? I, 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 the logic of what people try to do is they think that I, I need to consume more beans or lentils or stuff like that. And therefore, I'm going to go in and try to have a plant-based burger, but that couldn't be further from the truth. If your goal is to eat more plants, then by all means, eat more plants. You're gonna help the environment, you're gonna help the animal welfare, which is so darn important because we have gotten so good at looking the other way when it comes to those things. And lastly, you're gonna help yourself. So a healthy whole food plant-based diet is what happened in the blue zones. And if you want to live healthier, you want to live longer, do what the blue zones do. That's it. Sleep more, move more, practice gratitude and kindness, and eat more of a whole food plant-based diet. Dr. Hashmi, you mentioned the alignment that you have with the ACLM. And as defined by the ACLM, lifestyle medicine is the use of evidence-based lifestyle therapeutic interventions, including, as you've been discussing, a whole food plant predominant eating pattern, regular physical activity restorative sleep, stress management, avoidance of risky substances, and positive social connection as a primary modality delivered by clinicians that are trained and certified in the specialty to prevent, treat, and often reverse chronic disease. So that's the definition of lifestyle medicine. And leading health systems such as Kaiser Permanente have begun deploying lifestyle medicine centers, integrating lifestyle medicine into employee wellness, and expanding research into the therapeutic impacts of lifestyle medicine. And I think the important distinction to make here is that this is full lifestyle medicine across the continuum. And it's not just bariatric interventions. These programs are producing demonstrably better results than traditional healthcare programs. And they include diabetic patients with lower A1Cs, reduced hypertension in, in the patient population, and overall lower 30-day readmission rates and, and improved transplant eligibility. Can you describe some of these population health outcomes associated with lifestyle medicine in more detail? And I'd love to hear your views as a clinician on why care is so much more than just the metrics in and of themselves. For example, an A1C lower than eight may not matter if a patient is not healthy. Yeah. So, you know, the complexity of, of what we're actually trying to do, at least in Southern California, Kaiser Permanente, my role there is I'm the regional director for clinical nutrition and weight management for Southern California. And what 
I've been focused on is trying to come up with a comprehensive strategy to look at obesity management in Southern California. We classify obesity as a disease. And what we mean by that is far too often we shame patients for the fact that they may not have willpower. The reason that I always joke about this concept in that patients and doctors don't understand this concept is, is you may see a patient for 15 minutes every three months. But you know, every single day, that patient gets exposed to things like fast foods with the most beautiful marketing and the commercials and the bright colors. And we know that we have a craving for salt, sugar, and fat, and it's very, very hard to give up. So part of that understanding that obesity is a disease is, is the same thing as when somebody is an alcoholic, we don't keep sending them into a bar. I keep trying to remind people is, is you can't tell the alcoholic, your job is not to drink, but every day you need to go into the bar. And what's really great about healthcare organizations and ACLM is we're trying to stop that pattern. We're trying to get organizations to focus on healthier options. We're supporting businesses that are doing that. And within the healthcare system model, we're teaching our physicians on how to incorporate the basics of lifestyle medicine. Lifestyle is like a fifth vital sign, so to speak, in that if you ask your patients, even the act of a physician showing caring and asking, you know, Mrs. Smith, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Oh, I understand. You know, maybe we can talk today if you're okay with talking about how do we improve your sleep? Would, you, would that be okay? Do I have your permission? Because you always want to validate the patient, know where they're at and know that they're ready to have that conversation and then start that conversation to help them sleep more. If they're walking from their couch to the bathroom, that's great. You know, maybe we can increase that a little bit. Maybe we can have you stand up a little bit throughout the day. Or maybe we can say is, you know, first thing when you wake up in the morning, you just go outside and check the mail and do it at lunchtime again. You don't have to, but you know, that's a great start. When the physician shows that they're interested in the patient's well-being on these basics and they reiterate and they reinforce, then we're doing the same thing that all the fast food guys out there are doing because of the fact that they do it every single day, 24-7. We need to do the same exact thing. So our goal there is, is we combine things from lifestyle medicine, all of its tenants. We use weight loss medications when it's appropriate as an adjunct, but we don't start weight loss unless somebody's already incorporating the concepts of lifestyle medicine. And same thing with bariatric surgery. Bariatric surgery, believe it or not, is very effective for weight loss. The challenge there is if you don't build the foundation on lifestyle, what happens five years after bariatric surgery? In other words, when I have a patient who has had a Ruin Y or who's had a sleeve gastrectomy where we cut the stomach and made it small in both instances, patients can start to restretch that stomach simply by little by little forcing them to eat more. But if they don't understand the power of eating foods like vegetables, the power of calorie density, the power of movement going on, you know, we tell patients that exercise by itself will not really cause weight loss. And patients look at me like, what? Every patient that ever comes to me says, doc, you know, the reason I don't lose weight is because I don't exercise or I can't exercise because of my knee or my hip and so forth. But if you think about a slice of cheesecake of 600 calories and you say, well, 
you just ate a slice of cheesecake and then you walked for 20 minutes and you expected that 20 minutes of walking to undo it. You can walk at a, just a slow pace for an hour and burn only 100 to 200 calories. So in other words, you would have to walk three to six hours to undo the slice of cheesecake you just had. And that's why understanding the quality of foods, making those habits, you know, willpower fades every day, but habits last. And as healthcare providers, everything we do, every message we give, our cafeterias inside the hospitals, every single thing that as a patient walks around, if that isn't helping them in the right direction, then it's clearly guiding them in the wrong direction. We're either part of the solution or we are part of the problem. So where I believe lifestyle medicine and organizations like Kaiser Permanente and a number of other organizations are starting to take the lead on this is they're creating programs where not just a select group of physicians, in this case, ABLM certified physicians, but it's see one, do one, and then teach one. And this concept of creating ambassadors who can then carry this message into their own practice, teach their own departments. That's where the real power of lifestyle medicine is going to lie. And that's where we're going to see it. So these organizations are creating these programs where even though our ultimate objective is weight loss, it's not just weight, right? I can lose, have anybody lose weight by stapling their lips. What we're trying to do ultimately is to give them health and health starts and ends with lifestyle as the foundation. Well, Dr. Hashmi, I couldn't agree more. And this foundation of lifestyle medicine, when introduced to a patient, can be transformative and give them hope. That was the concept that you spoke about earlier and why it's so important. And I know that drives your personal why. There's so much right now I, I see that's broken in the healthcare system. And your organization, Kaiser Permanente and others, are really thinking about being part of the solution and providing hope for patients and helping them live their best lives. But I also want to think a little bit about physicians and the, the healthcare workforce in general. I, I mean, right now, that seems to be one of the biggest issues facing industry right now. I mean, after a grueling pandemic, which has stressed all health systems nationally to no end, nurses and physicians are leaving the profession in droves. And the pandemic has really compounded what was already there in that providers have been facing burnout for quite some time because of this transactional fee-for-service predominated profit-driven business model of sick care, which really saps the joy and the hope of caring for others in comparison to what might be a more idealized, holistic, unconflicted model of care. And it's been projected that burnout is affecting over half of the physicians in practice. And a recent Harvard report even called burnout, quote unquote, public health crisis that urgently demands action. And some physicians are even going as far as to say the profession isn't really dealing with burnout. It's dealing with moral injury because the word burnout is insulting and insufficient in describing the pain that they feel with the current fee-for-service system, the sick care system that robs them of the joy of truly helping others achieve optimal health outcomes. So I wanted to see if you could speak to how the practice of lifestyle medicine can revitalize the medical profession and provide it with an improved sense of agency to improve clinical outcomes and also help physicians and other providers tap into that altruistic purpose for why they got into medicine in the first place and you know unleash that healing reservoir that's relatively untapped right now in the fee-for-service model of healthcare. 
Yeah, this is such a complex topic because this concept of burnout is absolutely real. In movies, the hero, he or she never gets tired. In real life, our heroes do get tired. And these are men and women who have sacrificed so much through years and years, sometimes over a decade or more of training going on just to come into this profession. And the hard part is, is most of the stuff that we're doing is, is really putting band-aids on a dam that's about to break. And while we're doing that, we are too proud to ever ask for help ourselves. So when we think about lifestyle medicine, in my mind, the people who need it most is actually the healthcare workers themselves. I can tell you in my own practice, a number of physicians and nurses and staff, they come and see me for their own health issues going on. And it takes so much courage for them to actually reach out and say, you know, this is what's going on. My weight is really high, or I have diabetes and I didn't feel comfortable telling anybody. And so the first part of lifestyle medicine is for us as healthcare providers to understand it, to listen to the tenants, and then to actually do the tenants. Doing that is really important. Most physicians, they are coming from an, an era and uh, a field where they're taught to be confident. They're taught to know the information themselves, and they're really not taught to seek out any help going on. So as a result, it's really hard to convince them, and they don't understand how much of this can influence them. So part of that burnout occurs because of the fact that they themselves have not taken care of them. They've been so busy in work, and that's created an issue. And if you follow the tenets of ACLM, you will find that the joy in medicine one starts with, are you understanding who you are? Are you taking the time to make sure that your tank is full? When you're on a plane and God forbid the plane is crashing and you have a child next to you, when that sign comes on, the sign doesn't say, put the mask, the oxygen mask on the child first. It says, put it on yourself because if you don't put it on yourself, you will be unable to put it on the child. You see what a powerful concept that is, is, if you don't get your own well to fill, you can't take care of anybody else. Number two is, is in healthcare, we are so dependent on all sorts of metrics, but oftentimes the metrics don't necessarily correlate with getting the patient to feel better, getting the patient to come back and say, Dr. Smith, thank you so much. I feel so much better. I can't believe I haven't felt like this in years or, you know, my numbers are looking so great and I'm so grateful to the advice you gave me. And thank you for guiding me through this. Those kind of things are what energize us. Those are the kind of things that power us up. At the end of the day, everybody's human. And what that means to be human, it means that we all like to feel some sorts of gratitude. You know, it's funny when, when you express gratitude, you do so much for yourself. It's the most selfish thing you can do is express gratitude. But when you express gratitude, the other person on the receiving end also gets a tremendous amount of stuff. And for physicians, when we heal somebody, when they get better, when they see that, you know, they might've had a foot ulcer that's not healing and now it's healing. When they had heart failure and ending up in the hospital, but now they're home, they got to see their grandkid have another birthday or they got to have dinner with the family going on. Those moments are precious and we need those. And when, when I first started 13 years ago, I used to have my patients, they would leave these cards with me and, and they would put their initials and they would write, you know, they lost so much weight or this got better. And I had a wall 
And on that wall, I would have these anonymous cards of people's success. And I never had their names. I would just you know, tell them, put your initials or something, but don't put your name and feel free not to put any identifying markers. But when new patients or patients who were struggling, they would come, they would see that. It wasn't that they would be like, oh, I can't be, ever be like that. They would actually get inspired. Once again, they would find hope. And all my staff were so excited that they would find hope. You see, lifestyle medicine is one of the simplest things you can do. If you tell somebody to work on their sleep and you guide them through very clear tricks and tips on how to be able to do that, their weight automatically goes down. This is fascinating, right? There's a study out that shows that people who get less than six hours of sleep a night, they end up consuming on average close to about 300 calories more per day. And so you think about all these guys who are getting poor sleep, who are watching electronics all the way to the time that they ought to be in bed, who are so busy doing that. And then they have all these lights in the room and the room is not dark and it's not quiet and they don't do any kind of a regimen leading up to the moment of sleep. Then they have a very hard time getting quality sleep. Even people who say they get more than six hours, they're getting the recommended seven to nine hours. Is it the deep, restful, quality sleep? Or is it the anxious sleep where you're tossing and turning all night? So these little tiny things are what helps physicians and healthcare providers and nurses to feel like they're making a difference. And that's the greatest drug in the world is when you feel like you had an impact. This is why a lot of my colleagues that I know, they'll go out on sabbaticals and they'll go to different countries where healthcare is very poor and they'll volunteer. They don't even want a single dime. They will stay there for three months and do some of the most amazing work. And you'll ask them, how did you do that? You were working 18 hours a day. You had no sort of fancy equipments and you had to improvise on anything. And they said, you know, the joy that we got from our practice to be able to do what we love is amazing. One of the issues that we find is we've had so many new healthcare administrators come into our field who don't understand the basic concept of what is the joy in medicine? What drives physician and healthcare provider satisfaction? And at the end of the day, it's very, very simple. If you save a life, it gives you some of the greatest joys you can ever describe. If you feel like somebody had a moment, that's what matters. So when we talk about lifestyle medicine and how it brings back joy, it's one of the simplest ways to give patients the ability to do something different. I give diabetics medications all the time and they come back and their A1Cs are the same, but I give them a medication and I teach them about lifestyle medicine and they come back and their A1C is better. They're excited. I'm excited. And as a result, it fires me up. It makes me have hope that I'm doing some good. It makes me remember my why. If you ever read med school students who are applying to medical school, you read their resumes in the beginning, you'll find they are some of the most inspirational stories you have ever heard in your life. They will make you cry. They will make you be so emotional because you'll realize, wow, these are the kinds of people I want as my doctor. But then what happens 15 years later, 20 years later, where is their why? And lifestyle medicine can remind us of our why. Dr. Hashmi, I want to shift the conversation a little bit. We're at this historic moment in time now where the industry is finally prioritizing health equity at the same level as other value-minded goals like cost containment and continuous quality improvement. Social determinants of health 
like access to nutritious food, are especially challenging with high-risk, low-income populations such as Medicaid beneficiaries and dual eligibles. Approximately 13% of U.S. households report food insecurity, meaning that they lack consistent, dependable access to enough food for active, healthy living. This plight of food insecurity leads to the increased use of what we call big-ticket healthcare services, such as emergency department visits and inpatient admissions, which makes it an important social determinant to tackle in managing vulnerable populations. In terms of cost, food insecurity is associated with $77 billion in excess healthcare expenditures each year. And food insecurity is also an issue of health equity, since overweight and obesity in the U.S. occur at much higher rates in those racial ethnic minority populations like African American and Hispanic Americans who have a statistically greater chance of being uninsured. Dr. Hashmi, how can the lifestyle medicine movement help us solve for this challenge of food insecurity in vulnerable populations? Will the increased focus on health equity in our industry provide us with a more optimal pathway to better address the nutritional needs of underserved populations? And most importantly, is it necessarily true that plant-based eating is economically burdensome? What happens when you have competition, competition will drive down prices. That's just the law of, of supply and demand, and that's how it ends up working is when the movement towards a plant-based diet really started out, in the beginning, nobody was really aware of what a plant-based diet is. It used to be people were vegan before and they used the word vegan, but the word plant-based diet really didn't take off for a while. And now that it's taking off, what you're finding is, is that the ability to find cheaper foods that are still very high quality is actually increasing across all sorts of dynamics. If you go in some of the inner city neighborhoods, you will find that even there, you have much better options going on. Now, back in the day, the choice was simple. If you had 50 cents in your pocket and you could go get three tacos, three tacos for 50 cents, and that's all you had, you got the three tacos. You were not going to get an apple. You were not going to get a banana. You were going to get the three tacos because they were so filling. With lifestyle medicine, what it's doing is it's creating healthcare providers on the physician side, on the non-physician side, advanced care providers, on the nursing side going on. That's that. But then there's the social mission that ACLM has been doing an amazing job of, which is creating awareness, which is highlighting these up-and-coming companies that are really fighting health equity everywhere. They're making it easier for the most vulnerable situations and the most vulnerable populations to be able to have access. Now, I think of Plant Pure, and Plant Pure is one of those companies that what they do is, is they actually don't make any profits on any of their products that are being sold in these lower socioeconomic demographics going on. Yet on the flip side, they make just enough by selling it to regular folks who are able to afford it to be able to continue their mission. And what I feel is really important is when you find companies that are doing good, we need to highlight those going on because this whole movement of a whole food plant-based diet only works if the accessibility comes down. And what's happening right now is, is there's a trend of shifting away from meat that's happening all across the country. That's happening both in inner cities and in not going on. So as a result of it, even though I don't favor things like plant-based burgers and all that stuff, the movement towards plant-based burgers is the right 
thing to do. Because as we start to switch over, as we start to create awareness of the health benefits of limiting things like red meat, what we're going to find is that people are going to start being able to make better choices without knowing that they're making better choices. You know, if I told you to eat broccoli, you wouldn't eat broccoli. But if you didn't even know that you're all you're eating is broccoli and it's healthy for you and it's got all these benefits and sulforaphane and all this other stuff that's so amazing in there and it's just something that you do every day then you would do it but if you had a choice between donuts everywhere and broccoli you wouldn't pick the broccoli by making awareness by taking on that social mission that ACLM is doing such an incredible job on by having folks like you guys who are bringing these issues to light we are making waves like never before. So I think in terms of how we're moving, we're moving amazingly. We have gone against the giants, the Goliaths that exist out there. And we're the little tiny David that's out there. But you know, it takes a lot of heart. And the folks that are in this profession, the folks that are ACLM, the folks that are part of ACLM, that are connecting with ACLM, that want to learn about ACLM, they may be tiny, but they have some of the biggest hearts that you will ever find. Well, Dr. Hashmi, I couldn't agree more, and I'm excited to see this heightened awareness around lifestyle medicine and, and the, where that impacts uh, health equity and really making waves in the right direction. And that's, that's certainly an area of focus in the value-based care movement. And another area of focus is really rooting out low-value care, which is care that patients get, but they don't really need it. As you know, and many of our listeners know, in healthcare, more is not always better. You know, there's a, a high proliferation of unnecessary, ineffective procedures, tests, scans, medications that often cause substantial physical harm to patients. And it just wastes money and resources. I mean, anything from useless CT scans and repeated lab tests to unnecessary prescriptions, major surgeries that aren't needed, and the implantation of uh, poorly tested medical devices. And it's been projected that about a third of healthcare spending in the U.S. is wasted, which drives out-of-pocket costs and ultimately threatens the sustainability of our healthcare system. And low-value care is a significant portion of this waste. And it, the, the spending on low-value care has been projected to be around $100 billion to $700 billion each year. And I've seen this firsthand in my own administrative career. I worked with a cardiologist, and people called him Full Metal Jacket. And I didn't know why until I heard that, oh, yeah, if you light up his patients and image them, you know, they have 30 or 40 stents, and they light up, you know. And, and that's in a situation where, as a patient, you're only supposed to get maybe one or two stents in your lifetime. So I'm really interested, all that said, and where lifestyle medicine can help us address this issue of Americans receiving medical treatments, tests, and other procedures that are often wasteful, ineffective, and deadly. It, it certainly does seem like focusing on lifestyle can eliminate some of this waste that we're currently seeing in the system. I'd love to get your, your take on that. When we look at traditional healthcare, the way that the monetization worked was if you did a CT scan, you got to bill for it. So my incentive was to do more CT scans. If I did a cardiac cath, then I could get more funding for it. And as a result, I would do more cardiac caths. I would put more stents in. But when we flip that equation around and we say, you know, you're going to be responsible for outcomes. 
How many of your patients are having heart attacks? Have you reduced that? How many of your patients are optimizing their blood pressure? And what are you doing to achieve that? And then as physicians turn on themselves and they say, okay, now I know that in order for me to be able to maximize my income, to be able to maximize my outcomes, I have to look at what is going to be the most effective way. Now, one way to do that is say, well, you know, if I don't do the cardiac cat, that's great. But what's even simpler than that? How can I actually help people? Well, it's very simple. Lifestyle medicine is cheap. It doesn't mean that the quality is cheap, but lifestyle medicine is very, very inexpensive and we can implement it. So where lifestyle medicine comes in and outcome-based measures is we can use all of those things to help improve the blood pressures. We can invest in group-based clinics where we're teaching people, where we have dietitians who practice lifestyle medication, when we have programs that align with the values of lifestyle medication that are always concurrently going on while a person is being treated for heart failure or high blood pressure. Now, right now, we may have a health education class in most healthcare systems that's once a week and then that's it. But if you think of social media apps, and let's say I'll pick one out of the blue, let's say Instagram, you know, people, if you looked at how much time they spend on Instagram, it may be, you know, an hour, two hours, three hours, or even more that they just spend on Instagram every day. So when we talk about the ability to be able to reach people, we have the ability to use technology and bring the technology into what they're already doing to create communities that are based on social connection. So people have a way to be able to connect with like-minded people who are all trying to get healthier every single day. And that's where healthcare is very slow to adopt the things that the regular industry looks at. I mean, Facebook, for example, is a master at being able to create engagement. Those lessons that Facebook has mastered, aren't those the same lessons that if we could master as healthcare providers and have that kind of engagement in terms of options that are related to lifestyle medicine, how powerful that could be? So to me, the power of value-based care really lies in this idea that there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for healthcare to essentially take its head out of the sand, look at other industries that have mastered the art of engagement, that have mastered the art of communication and use those tools to then bring lifestyle in. And that's what ACLM is doing. Unlike most organizations that exist out there, ACLM understands that there's this tremendous need to be able to connect with people. And if you look at the material that ACLM puts out, it's beautiful. It's simple. It's easy to read. It's easy to follow. If you're looking for a tool, you can go on their website right now and find whatever tool it is that you are looking for. And as a result of it, that compelling value case is getting stronger and stronger. Now, doctors are still asking about how do I get paid for practicing lifestyle medicine. And in my personal case, where I look at it from is not that I'm going to get paid for telling somebody to eat more broccoli. Where I'm looking at it from is I'm going to get paid for helping somebody to control their blood pressure, to prevent their heart attack, to prevent their first stroke, to prevent their kidney failure going on. And by using lifestyle as that core concept and by using tools that create very strong engagement, that's going to be a low risk, high benefit proposition that has very low startup and maintenance costs. That's the ideal business model.
Dr. Hashmi, as a practicing nephrologist and internist with board certification in obesity medicine, and obviously as a firm believer in the power and nutrition of exercise, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the need to focus on value-based kidney care in our country. We have almost 40 million people in the U.S. who are suffering from kidney disease. and is currently the ninth leading cause of death. Treating kidney disease costs the Medicare program $130 billion. And although patients with kidney failure account for only 1% of the Medicare population, they're responsible for over 7% of all Medicare spending. And it seems that despite these massive costs associated with kidney disease, we currently treat it in an almost entirely reactive and uniform way. As a result, the, the majority of people whose kidneys fail end up in costly in-center dialysis. I mean, close to 90% of patients with kidney failure end up on dialysis. And that's such a bleak scenario since the mortality rate of dialysis patients is about 40% when you annualize the incidence rate. And if you're fortunate enough to survive that first year on dialysis, you're likely not to make it another five years. And I can't help but think, Dr. Hashmi, that the system is designed to fail patients with chronic kidney disease since we wait until they develop ESRD so that their Medicare benefits could kick in. And then we put them on expensive in-center dialysis. Since there are such catastrophic costs associated with dialysis, including the immense amount of human suffering and loss of life, how can lifestyle medicine create a better way to care for patients with kidney disease? Can lifestyle interventions work to prevent dialysis and better support kidney transplants as a preferred alternative? Yeah, so these are excellent questions when we look at lifestyle medicine and kidney disease. And, you know, I've devoted a better part of the last decade researching the roles of nutrition and lifestyle when it comes to kidney disease. But what I can tell you is, is if you have somebody already on dialysis, it's incredibly important to practice lifestyle medicine, incredibly important, because we have some of the hardest times controlling things like their phosphorus, for example. And what we know is the reason their five-year mortality is 50% or their one-year mortality is one in five or 20%. The reason it's so high is that all of them die of heart disease. They get massive vascular calcifications going on. Their arteries stiffen up. Their blood pressures become really, really labile. They have really hard time controlling the fluid status going on. And a lot of that stuff is stemming from what they're eating. Their diets are very, very high in salt. We're pushing the idea of protein, protein, protein. And as a result, they look at Big Mac or a hamburger or whatever it is and say, oh, great, because it's got you know those two patties in there, I'm getting my protein in. And it couldn't be further from the truth versus if we were to start to emphasize lifestyle medicine in those folks, we know the tremendous benefits in dialysis. We are not even talking CKD. We're talking in dialysis where you can control their phosphorus. Remember, plant-based phosphorus is only about 30% absorption. It's 50% less absorption than animal-based phosphorus. Just that alone, if you could control their phos, you could control this entire cascade that occurs where the calcium precipitates out with phosphorus. There's all these reactions going on inside your body where it's gonna end up leading to calcifications. You can reduce all of that. Even on a plant-based diet, you can control their potassium so you don't have to worry about those emergencies going on. You find that because they have regular bowel movements, those toxins, those uremic toxins that are causing them to have mental status defects, the cognitive defects, they all go down because you make less toxins on a plant-based diet. Therefore, less toxins in your gut means less toxins absorbed. So the power of plant-based diet in dialysis is incredibly powerful. 
Now you get into CKD, and the problem with CKD is we never talk about the power of plant-based diet, yet we know simple things like salt. The more salt you take in, the more you're going to spill protein in the urine. The biggest risk factor for progressing to dialysis is protein in the urine. So cut down your salt intake. If you cut down your salt intake, what you will find is your proteinuria is better going on. Even if you use an ACE inhibitor or medication that lowers the protein in the urine, you can increase, dramatically increase the effectiveness as much as 50 plus percent simply by making sure they're on a low sodium diet. How? A whole food plant-based diet going on. It's that simple. You can make sure their sleep is better because if their sleep is better, they're going to eat less during the daytime. If they eat less during the daytime, they're less likely to gain weight, get fatty liver, get kidney disease, get diabetes, and the diabetes will lead to worsening kidney function. So these simple concepts that we're talking about is so incredibly powerful that if you're in CKD, if you add the components of lifestyle medicine, you can dramatically lower their risk of progressing. And whatever medications you're giving them, every single one of those medications will be more effective simply because you added the lifestyle piece to it. Medications by themselves won't work. You know, there's a story when statins first came out, which are the cholesterol-lowering medications, the patients who started taking statins, they actually didn't find their cholesterols were going down. And, you know, the doctor's like, what the heck? You know, we're giving them statins. The study showed that their cholesterols went down. Yet in our clinical practice, <laughs> the numbers aren't going down. And the reason was that patients were actually going out and eating more bad foods, more fast food, more pizzas, more burgers, everything going on, because what they saw was, well, now I'm on a medication. I don't need to worry about my diet. And this is exactly what happens in kidney diseases. We give them phosphorus binders, which by the way, are not 100% effective. At best case, they will lower about 30% of the phosphorus that's in the food you're eating, which means the rest of it is still getting absorbed. So by trying to become more effective in the lifestyle piece, you are setting the right foundation. And CKD, you know, the number of patients on dialysis since 2005 or so, the, the study just came out, they basically said, it's doubled. It's doubled. The number of patients on dialysis has doubled, despite the fact that in the last 20 plus years, we've had several new medications come out that lower the rate of kidney disease decline going on. And what does that tell us? It's because giving medications is not enough. Value-based care is not about medications or about a procedure or about imaging. Value-based care is the concept that we are looking at outcomes. We want to make outcomes better. And one of the simplest, cheapest, and highly effective ways is to combine lifestyle with everything else that we're trying to do. Well, Dr. Hashmi, as we wind down our interview today, I wanted to focus on one aspect of the self-concept that we haven't discussed. We talked about sleep, exercise, and food, but there's also love. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, you provided the analogy of someone being on an airplane that's going down and you have to put the mask on yourself before you can help the child. And I think about that in terms of love, where you have to love yourself 
so you can love others. And you mentioned earlier in the interview that if you really wanted to be selfish, go and do something kind for somebody. I mean, that's the best way to, to feel that intrinsic gratification and giving to others. And, and, and it's truly, I think, the, the balm that, that creates healing and not only in medicine, but just in our own lives. And so much of that is really wrapped around the importance of gratitude and service to others. And gratitude is one of the greatest virtues, and it's really the parent of all the other virtues. And for our listeners out there who are leaders and value-based care. I mean, their kindness is manifested in their attempts to improve population health outcomes in marginalized and minoritized communities. They're out there leading the way in health equity and thinking about their service to others and, and how they can best help those afflicted with chronic disease and people dealing with behavioral health issues. And this work, as you mentioned earlier, is so difficult and it often seems like the, the goals are insurmountable, but when it's done in the spirit of gratitude, it really allows us to recognize the moral imperatives of value-based care and lifestyle medicine and, and really reimagine our healthcare system for the better. So I, I wanted to get your parting thoughts on love as medicine and how we can apply gratitude in our service to others so that we can provide healing with the servant's heart. Could you uh, provide some parting thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, a couple of things, and, and this may sound a little bit harsh to some, but the first concept is, is you know, if you're a leader, and whether it's healthcare or anything else, just because you have a title doesn't make you a leader. You're only a leader if people are willing to listen to you. And the only way they're going to listen to you is if they feel valued. So the, the first thing that I would say is, is as you're looking at all of the metrics and everything else that goes on in healthcare, don't forget the power that you hold from a simple word. By expressing gratitude to the team, to who they are, what you do is you create people's inner worth. You elevate their status. You make them feel like they belong, like they are somebody. At the end of the day, the most beautiful word you can ever hear, you know, this is a really interesting thing, and I, I never really thought about this, but the more I read about it, it started to make sense. But the most beautiful word in the world to you is actually your own name. And so every chance you get to call somebody by their name, to recognize the little things that they're doing, it's so important. Never end a meeting on just the numbers. Never start a meeting on just the numbers. Take 30 seconds to make it so that the people in the room feel valued. You know, Welcome, everybody. I just wanted to say you, know, you guys have been doing a great job. And today we're going to talk about X, Y, and Z. And Tommy, thanks so much for doing that thing last week. And Samantha doing that thing, you know, that really made a difference for us. Great. Those little things, it took me less than 20 seconds to do, but it makes all the difference when it comes to this stuff going on. And the other thing about gratitude is, is expressing gratitude to the people in your family who make all those sacrifices so you can do what you love. You know, oftentimes, you know, the folks that are working, whether it's men or women, they're sacrificing a lot to be able to work full days. And sometimes they feel like, you know, I'm working and my husband is at home and, you know, he's taking care of the kids and he's not doing anything, but my job is way harder. But you know what? Going home and saying thank you, it's going to make you feel better. 
Building relationships is so important. Life is all about moments. You put all those moments together and that's your legacy. And when you're lying on your deathbed, nobody, nobody is going to care that you met every single metric. But what they're going to care about is the fact that you made them feel pretty darn good. And so your legacy, you want your legacy to be one of change. And if you want to create change, it's very simple. Express gratitude, make someone feel better. You have no idea the battles that they're fighting. You know, I've gone through some really, really dark times in my life. When, when my wife was really sick, there was a moment where the doctor said that she was going to die and her liver was failing completely. And she got rejected for emergency liver transplant. And that meant that within 24 to 48 hours, she would not be able to speak. And essentially she would pass away. And I brought my daughter in and we sat on the bed and we said our goodbyes to each other. What I remember about that moment was... I got a call from my work, uh, from my supervisor, and it was all about how they needed me to do some work and, and take care of you know, some messages from patients and so forth. And I, I've never really forgotten that moment because you know, that was an opportunity to express gratitude, to say, you know, this is your darkest moment. And I didn't tell the person how bad things were, just that my wife is in the hospital and not doing so well. But just that moment would have been absolutely incredible. And what a missed opportunity. And when I look at people, I never forgive the fact that there could be a war that they're fighting every single day. And I don't need to know their war. I just need them to know that I care and I feel that they are valued for what they do. So value-based care is not about just the metrics. It's not about just the outcomes. It's about people. We are in the people business first. People first, then process will get you the results you want. It's not process first, and it's not process equals results. It's people, then process will get you the results that you want. Well, Dr. Hashmi, I wanted to take the time to express my gratitude for you and your leadership and industry and, and you spending time with us this week in the race to value. I mean, I think this was a very powerful interview and one that I, I'm really excited to share with our listeners because I, I really do think you're driving a movement at Kaiser Permanente and there's leaders across the country that are embracing these important concepts of lifestyle medicine and value-based care and really making a difference in our society and our country. So thank you for your work and of course your time today and spending with us to help us better understand how we can be better. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to have this morning and share some thoughts. And I'm really grateful for the work you guys are doing as well. So very grateful. Thank you, Dr. Hashmi. It was very inspiring. 